Jonathan Gold, a Los Angeles native, has been writing about restaurants and culture for the LA Weekly since shortly after his graduation from UCLA in the early 80s. And he has served at various times as proofreader, caption guru, third string movie critic, legal correspondent, performance art writer, gangster rap reporter, and music editor for The Weekly. Mm -hmm. He has also served as restaurant critic for California Magazine, Los Angeles Magazine, and the Los Angeles Times, and wrote countless features on hip hop and rock and roll artists for Spin, Rolling Stone, Vanity Fair, and Details. He's won four James Beard Awards for restaurant criticism, and as the New York restaurant critic for Gourmet, he was twice a finalist for the National Magazine Award in Criticism. Mr. Gold was also awarded the 2007 Pulitzer Prize for distinguished criticism for his counterintelligence column in the LA Weekly, the first food writer to be so honored. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Jonathan Gold. Thanks. <laughs> uh, on the, we're here to talk about authenticity in food tonight, the possibility of authenticity, the uh, ramifications of authenticity, and whether it's delicious or not. The, the, other, the other people on the panel are extremely well-known and extremely good chefs, the people who make the food world in Los Angeles as, as wonderful and as vital as it is. Uh, Nancy Silverton is the uh, chef or co-chef or owner chef or muse behind of uh, Moza and uh, Pizzeria Moza in Los Angeles. She started La Brea Bakery. She was the uh, pastry chef at Spago for a long time. She was and of course, the, a chef, the chef, the pastry chef and muse of Campanile restaurant, which did so much to further the sort of you know, organic, local, Mediterranean style of food that a lot of us are associating with Los Angeles right now. Jimmy Shaw. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Jimmy Shaw, a uh, Mexico City born and raised former advertising executive who puzzle puzzlingly devoted himself to the world of food, is the uh, owner and chef of Lotharia Grill, both in the farmer's market at 3rd and Fairfax and at a splendid new restaurant on Hollywood Boulevard near Highland. Um, Lotary is known for the, I suppose authenticity is going to be a loaded word tonight, but, but the integrity of, of his stews, of the uh, freshly made tortillas, of the uh, drinks like micheladas, and of the fact that almost everything you could get there, you could get at a, or you would hope that you'd be able to get at a really good uh, Chilango lunch counter. <laughs> Roy Choi is the chef, co-owner, spirit behind 
what actually may be the most exciting food phenomenon in Los Angeles this year with uh, Kogi tacos, with um, so many multi-billion dollar restaurants opening and famous chefs coming in from out of town and you know, va you know, vast glittering edifices on uh, Sunset Boulevard, the one that's getting everybody talking is a taco truck. He's <laughs> specializing in Korean tacos, uh, grilled Korean meats, folded into tortillas, um, topped with his very special salsa, and served two lines. I was in one that was, I think, 600 people long. <laughs> I have never waited in a 600-person line. <laughs> and... And lastly, but certainly not least, is Jazz Singsonong, who is the proprietor of Jitlada Restaurant in Hollywood, a really extraordinary Southern Thai restaurant, and a restaurant that I think uniquely in Los Angeles, there's an interesting story, and we'll talk about it in a minute, managed to succeed and become extremely culturally influential not by serving the sort of homogenized Thai food that you would get in your corner of cafe, but in serving the absolutely stone-cold, authentic and beautiful food of southern Thailand, a restaurant that, a, uh, a region that has previously been pretty much unexplored in Los Angeles restaurants. And she gets customers who are coming in not to eat the very good sort of vanilla Thai food, but to eat the challenging dishes that they can't get anywhere else. And she makes Los Angeles a better place just by being in it, I think. <laughs> Authenticity is possibly the most important but also the most loaded word in the uh, food writer's lexicon. A uh, word that I've probably used 10,000 times in my life without thinking, but which I've tried to stop using lately, along with the word ethnic, which neither of which have that much meaning. Um, Coleman Andrews, in his splendid book on the cooking of the Riviera, talks about a ravioli that he likes in Genoa. And the ravioli is stuffed with, there's a, there's a little brain, there's a little liver, and what's thought to be the essential part of it is a little scrap of cow's udder. And he wonders about authenticity there, because if you're in Genoa, you're probably using the cow's udder because it's what's in the market down the street and it's very cheap and if you're making ravioli, which is a way to stretch a little bit of protein into feeding a lot of people, that you know, having some you know, chewy, uttery goodness is probably not a bad thing. <laughs> it, it's an authentic dish. 
But if you were try to make, gonna try to make the dish in Los Angeles, you could probably find the spleen, and you could probably find the liver, and you could probably maybe somewhere find the, uh, the blood if you looked really hard in Asian markets. But you're not gonna find the udder because it's just not a part that's commonly sold here. So if you do get the udder and you manage to like call, call a slaughterhouse, you manage to talk somebody into selling you a little bit of this cow that they ordinarily don't sell, and you manage to put it in your ravioli, it, will the ravioli be authentic? Because it has the udder in it and the texture will be right. Or is it inauthentic because after all, the reason the udder is in there to begin with is because it's really close and convenient and cheap. Uh, with bouillabaisse, the classic um, dish of uh, fish soup of southern France, has all kinds of fish in it, including like, uh, you know, rascasse and tiny little fish and bony other things that are in the soup because it's what the fishermen couldn't sell. And it was, and it was cheap and they made soup out of it. Then when bouillabaisse began to be, you know, hundreds of years ago, began to be seen as a delicacy and emblematic of the region and began to be desired outside of the basic Marseille area. Was the soup less authentic because it didn't have the, the bony, cheap, unsaleable trash fish? <laughs> Is it wrong because you put a little bit of a pricey monkfish in it or, or lobster? You'll have French people who will argue for hours. <laughs> and I've heard some of those arguments. Uh, Cal Calvin Trillin, when somebody is going on and on to him about the authenticity of a particular dish and, and how a dish isn't authentic and how it's nothing like what he might have had in Lyon, he started to think that, yes, that's true. The reason that this is different from the other versions of this dish he's had is because he never liked those and he really did like what he was eating. So to him, the important question was, did you like it? Did you clean your plate? After that, everything was commentary. <clears throat> what makes the cooking in Los Angeles so vital is perhaps it's authenticity. The um, fact that you have Koreans cooking for Koreans and Salvadorans cooking for Salvadorans and Yucatecans for Yucatecans. And if you've eaten pretty extensively in Koreatown, you're not gonna be surprised when you go to Seoul. You're gonna know exactly what's in your bowl. But authenticity is a tricky thing, especially when you live thousands of miles away from the area that you're trying to be authentic about. Our, in terms of Los Angeles, are the vile mushes of uh, sandy acorns that the local Indians ate before the arrival of the Europeans, is that the authentic cuisine? Are the, uh, fist, the feasts of, massive feasts of grilled beef that the, um, that the Spanish enjoyed when they took over California, is that the authentic cuisine? Or is it the uh, fried chicken dinner and grilled cheese that um, people ate in Los Angeles when it was called Iowa by the sea? <laughs> is, it, is it the uh, 
you know, strange health food concoctions that uh, writers were already making fun of in Los Angeles by the uh, 20s and the 30s. Um, S.J. Perlman wrote a very good piece called uh, Farewell My Lovely Avocado. <laughs> I, I, I suppose that any of us living here would be perfectly qualified to, to go anywhere in the world and turn up our noses at their smoothies. <laughs> <laughs> really, go ahead, you have my permission. <laughs> but in terms of authentic food, we have dedicated cooks in town who have made Los Angeles their own, who perhaps cook Italian food as if Southern California was another province of Italy, is as important as... Um, you know, Lazio or Campania. You have people who grow vegetables in their backyard when they haven't been able to find vegetables in the market. Uh, you have people persuading other people to grow vegetables. You have people badgering farmers to grow the pig pigs and chickens and ducks and pigeons that are required to make dishes in the way that they remember eating it when they were growing up. Because authenticity is, as was implied at the beginning of this thing, about feeding a very specific hunger. And it's difficult, and it's difficult to do. It may, it may be impossible to do. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm hoping that some of the discussions today are going to be able to put us in a direction of thinking whether there's authenticity in cuisine can exist or can't exist. And I, Nancy, we, Nancy and I have been, have been friends for a very long time, and we've been in Italy se uh, you know, several, several times together. And we usually, we stay in the place where she has her house and where I sometimes rent an apartment nearby is a uh, tiny town called uh, Panicale on, above uh, Lake Trasimeno in Umbria, about almost exactly halfway between Florence and Rome. And the um, cook, characteristic cooking of the region, the dishes that are famous all throughout Italy are dishes from the lake, which is not a huge lake or grand lake, but there isn't much in the way of lakes in that part of the world. So there is a Roman emperor who is, I'm sorry, a pope who is rumored to have uh, died from stuffing himself on the local eels from the lake. That you, uh, that you look outside the, uh, the, the misty lakes in the morning and you see the people in their eel boats uh, catching eels among the grass. And the most famous dish of the region is a dish of giant carp that is prepared as if it were a pig. <laughs> it's not pig, it's a carp. <laughs> and in in eating this food and absorbing the food and smelling the smells and 
and having the herbs available to hand has to have informed your cooking in some way, hasn't it? Yes, well, first of all, I think that I'm the only, uh, listening to the backgrounds of mm -hmm. my three fellow uh, cooks, I think I'm the only <laughs> imposter on the, uh, on the podium. I'm Jewish, right? I'm mm -hmm. from the San Fernando Valley. Mm -hmm. uh, I have no Italian genetics within me, but I love Italy. I love the uh, cooking of Italy, the people of Italy, and I love traveling in Italy. Um, back in, uh, well, prior to opening Campanile, um, I was in New York at Maxwell's Plum, uh, left, left there, or got asked to leave there, I should say, and thought, or my then husband mm -hmm. and, and myself then thought we were ready to open a restaurant. And we went, to, we didn't know what kind of restaurant, but we went to Italy and we rented a house, and we were there for six, uh, six weeks, and this was not uh, where I have a house now, but this was uh, in Tuscany. And we were there with our two small children, and we cooked every day and ate every day, and it was there that it occurred to us that this is the kind of restaurant we wanted to open. We want to go back to California as opposed to New York, and we want to open a food that had simple, vibrant flavors using seasonal local ingredients and create an atmosphere where people wanted to eat together and have a good time. And so we came back and we opened uh, Campanile. And this was in 1989. And it was then, uh, thanks to uh, Jonathan's fellow journalists, that a new word was born for that kind of cuisine. And it was called Cal Italian. And if you looked at, uh, I don't know if you looked at the, Z uh, the Zagat, they didn't have Zagat then, but there was a, I forget what the publication was, that categorized a food, and anyway, Campanile, amongst a few other, a handful of restaurants, were the Cal Italian, and that was a name given to non-Italians that opened wannabe Italian <laughs> restaurants. And, and that's what I, uh, we opened, and, um, but what made sense about opening a restaurant like that was that the climate of, the, of Los Angeles and the climate of the area where we spent that six weeks, which was Tuscany, was very similar. And so there were similar flavors and, uh, and similar dishes that we, we could do. So we Californiaized Italian food. And um, when I think about some of the dishes that we did, and I think about some of the pastas they did, they were definitely not authentic dishes, I have to say. But I think they were tasty. Um, but it was when I started to return to Italy and I was able to go there for, uh, summer after summer and I finally bought a house there that I was able to eat a lot more Italian f food and get a better understanding of what Italian food was or is. Um, and I think that it is uh, still very similar to that Cal Italian food I make, but now when you look at the Zagat under Italian, you find mozza. It's no longer in the Cal Italian part. So I think I made a little bit of pro progress with some of my understanding of Italian food. But I think that Italian food is food to be uh, not rushed. It's food to be enjoyed. I think it's food to be uh, accessible, right? Very identifiable but also it's very regional. And so the area that I am in is Umbria, and that and it's nearby Emilia Romana is the food that I really do understand uh, 
the most, and that with the help of guidance from, you know, Mario Batali, one of my partners, and Joe Bastianich, who are real authentic, actually, they are Italian, help us at Mosa to create a menu that sometimes when Jonathan eats it, he'll say it doesn't really taste like it was in, made in Umbria. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that that is because Italian cooking or the Italian cooking that I like is so simple that it really need that it that that's why it doesn't always taste it because it's such a uh, byproduct of 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 its origin. So, for instance, when I go to my house in Umbria, the first thing I do when I get there to make me feel like I'm home in Italy is to make a big batch of pesto because I think that pesto never tastes or never smells like it does with with basil that comes from Italy. Um, and I think that that simple example is very true with a lot of the other ragus that we, uh, that we make for our pasta dishes at the restaurant. But um, I don't think that that makes them not be authentic because we are following traditional methods and using uh, traditional ingredients. We're not trying to reinvent any, any kind of meal. And we do want to create, when you come to Moza, an Italian experience, even in the way the menu is laid out, the antipasti, the pasta, mm. the sagandi, and the uh, dolce. And so I do think you do get an Italian experience, but I don't think it's an authentic experience. In, in, in Padicale, there's pr the third best restaurant is this little, this Trotteria is sort of on a, on a side alley. And it's where you go when you're not ambitious enough to go to lunch anywhere grander. And their specialty is a dish of guinea hen on toast. And it's a, it's a, pe it's a piece of fowl and it's roasted and it's put on this sort of saturated crouton. And there's sort of a mush, which I, as far as I can tell, is chopped um, like pe pancetta and the liver of the bird. And the, that crunchy crouton is saturated in oil and fat. And salt. And salt. <laughs> it's very salt. And there's probably a bouillon cube or a dash <laughs> of Maggie in there somewhere because it's what, it's, it's not your grand dish. This is an $8 plate of guinea fowl. And this, you serve this, when the same bird shows up on the menu at Osteria Moza, as well it should, suddenly the, it's not just a ragged scrap of fowl. It's sort of this beautifully presented, beautifully roasted thing of fowl that instead of the, the weird, uh, the weird rough chop flavored with you know artificial things that there's sort of that there's a liver paste very close to of a like classic perigina sauce and the bread of course is not the the weird tasteless saltless bread that you get in Umbria and Tuscany but the you know wonderful Libre bakery bread and it's there on the plate and you're doing all the things except there's some, every, everything's been upgraded a little bit. And I don't know if that's good or bad, I'm still waiting. 
And are, are you ever tempted to, to say, to hell with it, let's, let's make the trash version that tastes so good? <laughs> I mean, add that bouillon cube. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, I, there's certain things that are just in your nature that you can't, uh, I'm not saying compromise, but you just, I guess you just wouldn't do it that way. So you wouldn't use all like the scraggly bits, like mm -hmm. you say, you just, you know, you clean the chicken properly and cut it properly, not like grandma does it, does it back <laughs> there. And um, so I guess, I don't know if it's tempted or not, it just wouldn't be my, you know, our nature. But I know what, you know, Jonathan's saying, and that's a perfect example, and I completely forgot about some of those dishes that are from our ta town, just like the... Um, the peachy, which is the hand-rolled spaghetti, you know, mm -hmm. which uh, we don't quite get as long as they get there. But, um, you know, another dish that is certainly borrowed from that town. But I guess I wouldn't know how to make it that mm -hmm. way, right? Yeah. And, and, and I think the last thing that's go around is something I wanted to add. Is that sometimes it goes the other way. I was with Nancy, 1991, I think it was. And we were, um, after getting terribly lost on our way to La Spezia, we were somehow in Asti. I, somehow every road seemed to like route itself through Vercelli. <laughs> and we were, we were at this restaurant that was like, it's the kind of thing I call a folkloric restaurant, right? Where everything is, you know, like going to see, going to see some pageant. It's, it's a meal the way that they've always had it, the way they always will have it. There are, probably, there are less locals than there are tourists wanting to have like an authentic uh, Piemontese experience. And one of the desserts was panacotta, the first time any of us had ever seen it. And it was this awful little tennis ball <laughs> that was bound with huge, huge amounts of gelatin that it just stank of artificial vanilla. It had been overcooked. It was the least interesting dessert you would ever see. And Nancy had the eye to be able to look at that and not say that it was an awful dessert, but be able to see the beauty in it. And she came up with her pandacota, which is to say, you know, you know, you know, light and luscious and per and perfectly creamy, and with you know the barest, barest touch of gelatin, if anything at all, and suddenly it was just a beautiful dessert. And was it authentic? No, I think the authentic one was the tennis ball. <laughs> <laughs> but there is something to be said to going, going in and cleaning things up. And I would swear that the popularity of her restaurant, which then spread throughout California to New York and then bounced back to Italy, is, and, and now there's some sort of panacotta on almost every dessert menu there, which is interesting. It's so it doesn't always just go one way. So, uh, Jimmy, you, you, you grew up in uh, Mexico City until you were a teenager, right? Right. And you ate in... You ate, you ate in Mexico City. That's the food that just resonates the most with you. At home and in restaurants and friends' houses and in the street, yeah. And when you decided the advertising business was so much, what, what was it about 
Mexican food that made it imperative that that be what you cook? First, it was, you know, when I moved to California about 25, 24 years ago, 23 mm -hmm. years ago, something like that. I was trying to figure it out with you. Um, I found Mexican food, but I didn't find food of Mexico. Mm -hmm. And so there was always a cut here, less so now then, than, mm -hmm. than then. But uh, I often say that it was, it, Mexican food is in its spaghetti phase. It hasn't gotten to its pasta phase yet, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and by that I meant that, that, you know, Mexican food, when I got here, um, especially tacos, there wasn't a place to take a girl out on a date with, for tacos. You know? <laughs> and I found, I found that, you know, growing up in Mexico, a great taco is uh, movies and tacos, wedding and tacos, dancing and tacos, whatever, whatever, and tacos was a great date. At whatever age, at whatever, at whatever place in the socioeconomic scale you are, you know, I mean, you find they're, they're fancy taquerias and, and very, you know, inexpensive ones. and, and um, but that was part of the dynamic that I was missing, is, is having the taquero in front of you and being able to yell at him like a sushi chef, for instance. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when tacos were put onto um, just fast food trays, you lost part of the date. And so mm -hmm. one of the first things that, that I wanted is a place to take a girl out on a date, where you could mm -hmm. sit at a counter and yell the order into the taquero. Then I wanted the food to taste like Mexico. And that's where it was um, just a little off for me. I mean, there mm -hmm. were there were there were either in the, the preparations or the ingredients or, or any number of things. There just was, it was Calmex, not Mex-Mex. Mm. And so I, my whole thing was my Mexican friends and I would say, where do we go eat Mex-Mex? Mm -hmm. um, certainly there are all the cooks that you need in this city, they, they, can, they can do it. Um, and my experience growing up in Mexico was so often, and then when I came to the US to go to school and I would take friends back with me to Mexico, the fascination on people's faces for what true food of Mexico is, all of that kind of said, aha, that's, that's what I should do. Is, is, it, is, it, is it difficult to make uh, guacamole for people who have had guacamole a, a thousand times in their life? Or is it easy to make it just that much better that they'll appreciate it for what it is? Well, I think part of it is the ingredients. I mean, we, we, you know, we get better ingredients. So um, I think a great freshly made guacamole is going to be delicious no matter where you have it. But if you get good ingredients, it's... I don't know if I answered the question. Yeah, 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 sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and why do you decide to... Unlike every other taco place in town, uh, you do you do the guisadas, you do this you do the stews instead of doing you know yet another you know al, al pastor and carnitas and um, you know car, carne asada. Why, why did you think that the stew was the way to go? To my silly Mexican lens, whenever I walked into a U.S. taqueria and I would see the beef taco, chicken taco, fish mm -hmm. taco, um, that would read to me like going into a sushi bar and reading today's spa special mollusk. <laughs> you know, what is it? How's it made? Um, so that was one of the first things. It, it, and even carne asada is a great, yeah. a great example. In Mexico, if you go, carne asada you would find typically along the border in the, in the, in the Baja California, in Tijuana, mm -hmm. um, Laredo, Novaredo, all those areas. But once you get into deeper Mexico, again, to my silly Mexican lens, it's, it would be like going to a steakhouse and they bring you the menu and they say, charred meat. 
carne mm -hmm. asada, charred meat. Um, is it a New York, is it a porterhouse, is it a filet, is it a what? You know, so there was so much generic in my, in my lens to how Mexican was being presented that I felt that, um, that guisos was just a wonderful way to go. It's, it's, mm -hmm. There's some great places in Mexico. So guisos are, are made in, in great homes. Um, there's some wonderful restaurants in Mexico that focus on guisos, and I just thought that was where one of the biggest holes was. You know, there was a mole here and, you know, a, a, a pipián somewhere else, but no real menu based on those wonderful regional stews, guisos. What would you what would you say is your heart region in Mexico? What where, where do you think that your your what region do you think vibrates the most strongly in your food? Um, probably the Bajío, mm -hmm. uh, which is the central area for Mexico City, going up through Querétaro, Guanajuato, um, all the way into like San Luis Potosí, nearing the north. But that would be one of the the, the main areas, and then the Puebla Oaxaca area. Mm -hmm. um, Puebla and Oaxaca are such wonderful regions in Mexican cuisine, and they influence so much of the national cuisine as well. Having grown up in Mexico City, you get so much influence from all over the country. Sure. But I think the, the, the heart of the country, the Bajío, and then the, the Puebla, Oaxaca. And, and when, you, when you go out, and I, I know you're a chef and you have two restaurants and a catering business, and you probably don't get the time to go out as much as you like. But when you go out, then you go into some of the new uh, poblano restaurants owned by poblanos, where people who, uh, who have moles from very specific parts sure. of Oaxaca. Are, 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 you, are you happy? Does it, does it make your heart sing in, in a certain way? Is there something in that food that is different from yours, or do you think your food is just different? No, I think I appreciate a good cook anywhere they are. And, and I, I relish the idea of there being more and better Mexican food in the city. You know, um, think, of, think of the wonderful choices for Italian. We have better mm -hmm. good Italian choices in the city than we have good Mexican choices, I believe, mm -hmm. um, at least to my, to my Mexican palate. Um, less so today than we would have maybe 10 years ago or 15 mm -hmm. years ago. 15 years ago, that was absolutely true. Um, so I, I relish the idea of there being some great new Mexican restaurants in the city. I think that the, the food of Mexico is glorious and well presented, it is, it is magnificent. What I tell everybody that comes to work with me is that you know, we're just doing our little bit to correct this, this, this um, misperception of what Mexican food really is. Um, but, but the idea that there be more and better Mexican restaurants in the city, even from there being you know, a small local mom and pop Oaxaqueño or Poblano mm -hmm. place to finer dining, bring it on because I think it's, it's, it's a wonderful cuisine and more people need to eat it. And do you, th since in many real senses, Southern California is a part of Mexico, that we have, that there are, what, between seven and nine million Mexicans in the, you know, the metro, metro region, that it, it was part of Mexico for a long time and part of, part of Spain for a long time before that that the, that, that, you know, the, the hills look like Mexico and it, sm and it smells like Mexico and it looks like Mexico and when you cross the border at the Baja, there's not that much difference. It's, it's, not, it's not like crossing the border from, say, France into Spain where everything looks different and the, tree, and the trees are suddenly strange. It's, 
the same. Do you think that uh, looking at Los Angeles as a part of Mexico and having a distinct style is valid? Sure. There's, it's a, it's a, it, when, you, when you refer to that, you mean the old Calmex? Yeah, I mean, like I mean the old Calmex, yes. Oh, very much so, absolutely. It's its own region. Where is it influenced from? You know, um, it's, it's influenced by typically northern Mexican food mm -hmm. um, and Tex-Mex. And maybe perhaps some, some uh, New Mexican Southwestern type influence as well. But it's less, it's, it's more similar to those border cuisines, which are each their own cuisine. Mm -hmm. It's closer to that than it would be to the food of the Bajillo or the food of, of Veracruz or Oaxaca. Sure. Thanks very much. Now, now we're on to, to Roy. <laughs> And we're talking about authenticity, and I, in some senses, there is no conceivable way in which what Roy does can be considered authentic. He's very well trained in French cuisines. He's helmed uh, very important hotel kitchens. He's opened, uh, you know, you know, big multi-million dollar fusion restaurants. And you, you, and you find yourself doing Korean tacos. <laughs> I was actually out of a job. It was a hobby in between jobs, but it turned into this. Was it, was, it, was it just a dream? Was it a vision? Or? No, it was uh, my partner's idea, and we worked together at the Beverly Hilton, mm -hmm. and um, he just came to me. It was actually a, um, kind of like a, a therapy. It was a cry-on-the-shoulder meeting. He, he found out that I lost my job. I, um, he bought a cup of coffee for me, and then he said, let's open a taco truck. And it was like those three steps. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, and then, so from there, it just turned in, again, it was just a hot, we started going out at midnight every night. Uh, so we would arrive at the truck at nine, I'd start shopping, like I'd go in the morning, shop at the markets, and then go back home and take a nap, and then go back out to the trucks at nine o'clock. And then we just hit the clubs um, late night. But then, um, you know, we couldn't, we, we weren't getting a following at all, we couldn't sell anything. Um, and it was just at the point where, what was great about it at the beginning was, we were controlling everything uh, very deeply and spiritually. Mm -hmm. And so once people started to eat it, um, I think they felt that connection to us. And from there, uh, the social media side kind of kicked in. And, um, and then we, that, that soul kind of went through the electronics, which, which is great. And from there, it spread, it spread like wildfire. Do you think Kogi is conceivable without the Twitter? Um, yeah, I, I, think, I think it's conceivable, but we'd be running a taco truck on some dark alley still. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, the food that we do is, is definitely not authentic. I mean, it's great to sit here and talk mm. about food. Um, again, I'm probably the, the least distinguished person on this table. It's just uh, what we're doing is we're really just presenting a piece of L.A., um, and I don't, I don't know enough about Mexico. I know Mexico and Latin America through the hundreds of cooks that I've worked with. Um, I'm, I, you know, I look Asian, my blood is Asian, mm -hmm. but I'm completely American. 
I go back to Korea, and uh, Korea parallels Italy a lot in not only the, the, the nature of the land being a peninsula, and we're just not as good looking as the Italians. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but, but the, the great thing about Korea is that uh, when you go to Korea, um, you f what, what I see in Italy as well is you go to certain regions to find that specific thing. Mm -hmm. um, like in Korea, here in LA you have bibimbap. In Korea, you go to a certain region to have bibimbap. It's called Cheongju bibimbap. Um, when you go to the island of Cheju, there's like uh, only three things that you eat. You eat nothing else except for three things, and that's mm -hmm. black pork, which is like a Berkshire pork. Mm -hmm. um, you eat the mandarin oranges, mm -hmm. and you eat this really bony fish that has like no meat, like 90% bones and like 10%. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then, and then, um, and then you go to get to get like um, the walnuts, which we call the uh, hodo. Mm -hmm. um, you go to an area called Chanan, and and then there are certain seasons that you go, and then and then. Um, also, within the city, within the urban section of, of Seoul or Busan or any of those cities, um, you go to specific street vendors to find, almost like tacos in, in Mexico, you go to specific street vendors to find specific things that are even within micro streets of different areas within the city. So to find dakboki or blood sausage, sundae or um, uh, odeng, which is fish cake. Um, so. From that spirit, even though I'm American and I grew up in LA, um, the spirit of that food and that, I guess, authenticity, it's there in those regions because it, it, it comes from thousands of years of people growing up within, only within that region and being, only being able, around those resources. Um, but here in LA, uh, I tried to take that spirit um, and I just tried to tap into the rhythms of, of the city, specifically between like Alvarado down to <laughs> Crenshaw, from like uh, Venice up to um, Melrose, you know, and then take, yeah, any of you been out there? <laughs> but take that box and then if you, if you walk through that box or take the bus, take the 720 or take the 724 or whatever, the <laughs> you know, and you, t and, and you go into the Korean supermarkets or you eat at a Korean restaurant, um, you know, you get, a, you get a certain rhythm from there. And Kogi taco truck is that rhythm. It's, it's, whether it's right or wrong, I don't know. But, you know, we're, we're, we're just kind of, it's just kind of a looking glass into that. So. Beautiful. But there was, talking to you a little earlier, there was, there was something that impressed me in that as you're, as I think that Kogi thing advances, you were doing more and more purely, I mean, very Korean things, like, like yeah. uh, Sunday, the, the, yeah. the blood sausage, which is delicious. You know, he fries, he serves on a plate with his salsa, it's fantastic. <laughs> Uh, th that I, I know we've talked about you doing yeah. some inner intensive stuff. But on the other hand, you spend a huge amount of your day in the um, taco, taco truck depot on uh, Washington and Oak. Yeah. So, you're, you, so you're spending a lot of time being more Korean and your days are spent being very, very Mexican. Oh yeah, and that's LA, you know. Well, yeah. that part of LA, Crenshaw to yeah, Crenshaw <laughs> to Vermont. Uh, but 
but it's not the Mexico that, that maybe you know. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I can only feel Mexico through the immigrants that have come in. And a lot of the immigrants that have come in are, are from a working class level. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the food that I learn from them and that I see through them, you know, maybe a lot of bits and pieces type of food. And then um, the culture that I learn is, is that same culture. So, again, it's that spirit of, of cooking, using Korean. Like, if you look at our taco, um, if you have our taichi bulgogi or our kalbi or our, mm -hmm. our tak bulgogi, which is pork, beef, and chicken, um, they're like any... Korean barbecue you would get in Koreatown. Um, it's a little more intense, but the authenticity of, of, of those marinades is, is true. Um, uh, my family, my dad's side of the family has like, um, it's, it's almost like folk, folklore. They have like, they always tell me they have like thousands of years of history of, of cooking. Mm -hmm. And, um, and there's, a, there's a term in Korea called sonmash, which means like literally kind of flavor in your fingertips or, you know, something like that. So, um, you know, I learned a lot of those recipes that we owned a Korean restaurant that went bankrupt, you know, and, uh, in, the, in the early 80s. Uh, but I, I, in elementary school, I, I grew up in a Korean restaurant. So I, I, I learned all of those marinades and I, and, and, and I brought those together. But then at the same time, uh, growing up in L.A., you know, eating food, going to cook's homes on a Sunday afternoon and and knowing those flavors, um, you know, and then being around Washington and Oak, um, you, you know, I tried to, we tried to bring that into it as well. And, and really, you know, use the right chilies. Um, you know, our sauce has a blend of three different dry chilies that we buy from a Mexican market, uh, Mexican produce market. And, um, you know, but, and then we're using com completely, really, you know, pure sesame oil, deep uh, brown rice vinegar, uh, gochujang and, and um, gochugado strictly from Korea and all these things and um, so it is definitely a weird mix but uh, I think beyond the food it, it mixes it mixes the cult the two cultures very well because um, you know the two cultures are very very hard-working people mm -hmm. um, that that put their ego aside and then when they when they got blended together it was almost like you know two friends that should have met a long time ago. <laughs> the, story, the story of jazz, which a lot of you I'm sure know, is extraordinary and it's something that I've never seen in all, in all my years of writing about food in Los Angeles. Uh, she and her brother took over Jetlada, which is one of the oldest and most respected and was probably one of the most boring <laughs> Thai, Thai restaurants in Los Angeles. Uh, three years ago? Yeah, three years ago. And though there was some notice in the Thai newspapers, I don't think it really resonated. And in, <clears throat> in one of these anecdotes that's become legendary, um, a, a guy who named Eric M., who posts to a bulletin board in Chicago, I think he lives in Los Angeles now, um, saw a, a menu of hers lying around the, uh, 
less than elegant hotel where he was staying, and looked at the regular stuff, then flipped it over and realized that the Thai-only menu on the back was all dishes he'd never heard of, and from what I gathered, didn't recognize. And he lived in Thailand for a while, and he helped, it, and he started to translate it, and he had um, uh, Jazz's brother, who's the chef at the restaurant, helped to translate it, and posted, after a while, a translation of the the uh, Southern Thai only menu on the internet. And they were all dishes that hadn't been seen here before. There had been a couple of restaurants that served three or four Southern Thai dishes, but never anything close to the variety there had been, like, uh, like uh, fish in a, in a sauce of wild tea leaves, or um, uh, fish balls stuck, stuffed with duck egg yolk in a, a special beautiful gentle green curry, or um, <clears throat> I, or, or this this uh, wonderful fried fish that was coated in turmeric that had has like a particular crispness and a particular pungence that I I'd never tasted in the sea bass before, and people started to blog about it. I. I, I reviewed it. Uh, it was it sort of made the rounds of the national food magazines, including a, a long piece in Gourmet. And a funny thing happened is that the people who came into her restaurant were ordering the Southern Thai dishes. They weren't ordering the familiar stuff from the beginning of the menu. They were ordering the ch the challenging, sometimes you know, p pungent or super sour or other you know, unfamiliar things on the back, like a newly translated page. And Jet Lada became not just a Thai restaurant, but a southern Thai restaurant with a regional specificity that just had not been seen in Hollywood before. And one of the things I wanted to did that, how much of a surprise did that come to you? That people were ha having worked serving, I guess, California Thai food for so long that you finally had people coming in and ordering the dishes that you enjoyed as a child? I think um, I have to give credit to uh, Thuy, my brother, mm -hmm. that he loved to cook. And our family never had business before. And he said, one day I want my food to be on the public. And I told him, let's go to Jitlada because I came to the United States in 1979 and craved Southern food. And even you don't know how to cook Southern food, you know how to eat the food. <laughs> like, you can tell right away this is not Southern food because the first thing is very spicy. Because all the Southern people growing up with the chili and everything is growing in the backyard and it's hard to find Southern people go to the restaurant and buy the food because no one ever make the food as good as they make in their own kitchen. And when my brother make everything, it's always good. <laughs> and I say, let's um, buy Jitlada because they closed down the place uh, three years ago. It like closed down for four months and I'm in Thailand and I call him, why don't you take over the Jitlada? But it, it bad, we put the same name and everyone hate the food because the food, it, it, it bad, it old, 
And I'm sit down there with him one day and he asked him, how come you didn't go to the market? And he said, I don't have any more money to buy the food. I said, what are you talking about? No money to buy the food. He says, all the money gone because the customer doesn't show up every day and the food, it have to be fresh and like fragrant, like fresh chili, fresh onion, garlic, and uh, cilantro, lemon glass, coffee lamb, everything is fresh every day. Every curry that we make in the restaurant is homemade, like we eat at home. That's why if the customer doesn't show up, it's not good for next day. <laughs> that's, that's so hard, and then I sit down thinking, I'm gonna take the money out from the bank, but it's so hard. If my husband fire out, that I'm in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the people who make me stand for the day, I think Oprah Winfrey. I think if one day I didn't make it, I'm gonna write her the story that, <laughs> that I came from Thailand, only one suitcase and $200, and dreamed to bring 12 in the family to USA. Mm -hmm. And when I thought about her, that made me take the money out. And I think after Eric translation, the menu, Pat from uh, LA, um, Eating LA came and said, your food is so good. One day, Jonathan Go will be in your place. And everybody tell me, Jonathan Go will show up. And I say, who is Jonathan Go?" <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know him. And I think he's sitting there like four or five times already. <laughs> but, you know, maybe I work and help him in the kitchen and run out. But most of the food is prepared by um, the curry prepared by him but all the sauce in the restaurant prepared by me. It's so many times that customers love the sauce and ask me, Jazz, how did you make the sauce? I love to tell them so bad, but a lot of financial in the bank that I have to keep the secret. <laughs> <laughs> but I promise one day, you know, all the sauce is not gonna go with me, it will go to the public. Mm -hmm. But let me pay off all the bills. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> And Jonathan go come back one day with the camera under the table that made me cry so bad because <laughs> this is the room of Tui and me and the other 12 in the family. I just let them know that we're gonna serve why people know our food is good and such a honest thing to the customer that everything that we cook to them, they never can find anywhere else because our food is our own recipe our own home cooking, like whatever we eat at home. Every day we sit down at night and when he make one thing, like the last dish that's so famous, we call uh, mechan. That means my mom pork, you know, like that used to make for mom every time that she delivery the baby. We get to eat that grilled pork and now it's in the menu. And mm -hmm. you know, like now it's the menu from 70 thing, it run up to 126. And at all different tests and different kinds because dad, our dad is such a good cook and they always cook fresh from the kitchen. I always have to go to the garden to dig the turmeric uh, lemon glass at the backyard and we're growing everything, even coffee lamb, leaf. Even in LA, my backyard have all lemon glass, coffee lamb, leaf. I have two big trees that every time that I water them and say, get a lot of leaf because I need you in the restaurant. <laughs> And um, I have um, turmeric that always die in the winter. 
and growing up again on the summer. And now I bring it growing in front of the restaurant. If you want to see all the herb, even kalankar, we're growing everything. And our restaurant cooks soup. Even you know the soup like coconut chicken soup, everything is fresh from, from the garden. It's like fresh kalankar, mm -hmm. fresh lemongrass. Mm -hmm. Like I tell you one day, I tell everybody about the recipe. Mm -hmm. Let me keep for a while. Mm -hmm. <laughs> can, can I ask a question that I, I hope you don't find it impertinent, but it's the, it's the thing that probably everybody that goes to your restaurant wants to know. Um, you have some of her curry, specifically like a beef curry, but some other ones are possibly the single most incendiary foods to be gotten in anywhere in California. And, uh, you know, a, a, a friend of mine who happens to be in the audience uh, has managed to persuade Jazz to bump up the heat of the food so much that it actually caused him agony for several days afterwards. <laughs> in places where you just do not expect that agony. <laughs> Um, but, but, when, but I'm sure that everybody goes into your restaurant and they order that or they order some of your other curries and they say, I want it hot. I want it very hot. How do you know when they're lying? <laughs> I think I shared the curry name with crying curry. <laughs> because no, it, the chili, it's hard to tell you. Like Someday when you buy the fresh chili, one chili, it like the whole pot would burn. But someday you put like 10 chili and nothing happened. And I always tell Tui, taste the chili. And I'm <laughs> the only one who know that how the chili, and we always like, when they see the picture on the, on the table, say, do you think Tui and me love each other? We're killing each other every day. <laughs> because I tell him, don't make it too spicy, and he won't listen to me. He yeah. always make the way it is. He say, this is Southern Thai. Cuisine and you know you never have limit of the chili. Mm. The only way I do for the customer, I I ask them how spicy you like. If it's too much, then I take it back and I didn't talk to him and I walk right to the kitchen, make the new one for the customer. That's mm -hmm. what I do. Yeah. There, there was there was a time I came in um, w with my my friend Carl <laughs> and you brought out that dry beef curry and. You were worried that it was hurting us. It was very hot. <laughs> and, and there's this dish of vegetables on ice that you're supposed to eat to relieve the pain. And she, and, and she, and she asked Carl, uh, so this isn't too hot for you, is it? And he goes, well, it's not hot enough. The, the, this is not the way that you eat it, is it? And Jess goes, no. And she takes it back to the kitchen, and uh, Carl basically got the plate of beef all to himself. <laughs> but it was, it was amazing. At that level of heat, which was much hotter than anything that one might do intentionally, suddenly the flavors all made sense. That It wasn't just a blast of heat for the sake of heat, that it was like shining sunlight on something. I mean, suddenly the nuances of the food were there and the flavors were there and everything and, and the, uh, you know, sort of the citric thing was there and the flavor of beef came out. And when the, 
chili was raised to the proper, if painful, level, it was just a better dish. And that was fascinating to me. It's not, it's not anything I'd ever contemplated before. That's why I always tell customers, don't always ask for more. Yeah. <laughs> this is real chili in Jitada. Mm -hmm. I always tell them and warning them with every single dish that says spicy. Mm -hmm. But most of we have to make spicy because if you're born in southern Thailand and you cook the food and bring to their table, and they will say, well, are you sure? Are you from southern Thailand? Mm -hmm. Because nothing happened, like no taste at all. But for me, sometimes I think my mouth would burn. But never yeah. satisfy the southern people. That's why if you want to keep the food authentic and original, we have to cook like, you know, we mojun chili at home and blending all the chili and garlic, onion, lemongrass with all the curry, fresh and very spicy. That's what southern people love. And you were, t and you were telling me just this morning that, um, you know, people from southern Thailand come in there and they recognize it as, not as a Los Angeles restaurant that serves southern Thai food, but as a southern Thai restaurant, and that must be... No, they say homemade, like my mom. Yeah. They always tell me, wow, like my mom made it, my grandma made it, that make me so happy because that's that what the real food is from southern Thailand. Thanks. Well, good evening. We're now opening it up to Q&A. Uh, I've given an opportunity for all of you to ask questions to our panel tonight. Um, we want to remind you that this is being recorded for both video and audio podcasts, so all questions must be asked into the microphone. Just raise your hand and wait for a Sokolo staff to get to you. There's two of us going around. Uh, if you could please state your first and last name before your question. We'd like to give a sense of community. Um, and also at this time, our donation buckets will be going around, and we do appreciate any and all of your support. Thank you. Question in the back and center. Uh, Ishtiak Chisti from Long Beach. I had a question about the, the Korean taco gentleman. Um, I just recently found out that uh, kimchi is so uh, much part of Korean culture that your government spent millions of dollars with the astronaut going up in space so you can have kimchi. So my question is, do you consider that also authentic Korean food that you're willing to mix it with your taco to serve? Um, <clears throat> I, I, you know, I don't know the deep, deep history, you know, through the different dynasties of kimchi, but um, mm -hmm. I mean, kimchi is definitely a representation of Korea, but uh, I think the, the American public's understanding of kimchi is a little skewed because um, uh, kimchi itself, it, it, it's almost like a broad term, you know, whether you, you say pasta or, or any, any term. It, 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 it really goes back to the fermentation of the vegetables due to the seasons in Korea. So each region of Korea has different kimchis. Um, and then some ki kimchis are what we consider very deep and dark kimchis that sit in the ground and you forget about them for a couple of years and then you come mm -hmm. back and then and then there are some that are fresh um the, and there are some that are fre done fresh every day and thrown away just like maybe her curries um but yeah it definitely it, it represents who korea is but um but there's more complexity to just the napa cabbage kimchi 
uh, we do uh, implement it in our tacos, um, and uh, you know, also we make some fresh style kimchi. Um, we're using different things that we find here, um, different leafy vegetables and root vegetables that will will turn into somewhat instant kimchi, like dandelion greens and um, sesame leaves and uh, different roots and sometimes carrots and, and, and radishes. But um, uh, I don't I don't know if I answered the question, but we do put kimchi in the tacos, and there's, yes, it is part of Korea. It does represent Korea. We have a question here to your left. Hi, my name is Jay Ellis. I'm from Los Angeles. I'm a filmmaker and producing a show called L.A. on Sunset to celebrate cultural and ethnic diversity in, in Los Angeles. We're exploring restaurants, and I wonder if any of you are aware of restaurants along Sunset that are especially unique, that uh, highlight our cultural diversity, and I know you didn't want to use the word ethnic, <laughs> but ethnic diversity as well. Jitlada. <laughs> uh, Sehag's Basturma is on Sunset. It's a really, it has uh, like a, a original uh, Armenian uh, cured meats that are terrific. Um, I guess, Millie seems ethnic, though it's like sort of like ethnic trailer park. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, you know that that that's that's that that that's ethnic too in a way. Um, you know, El, El Warache is is pretty good. That's like you know Mexico City style food. That, Sunset is a very long street with a lot of good stuff on it. It's no pico. <laughs> We have a question up here in the front. I'm Carl uh, with the beef curry. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, it, uh, it occurs to me that the issue of authenticity of food sort of parallels uh, authenticity in music, which is a big uh, issue at times or has been over the years. And I sort of maybe would like Jonathan to comment on that. You know. In, in music, rock and roll, which was indisputably American, was adapted by the British and others. And yes, it was different, but it was certainly arguably, um, if not better, just through its difference, was interesting. And not competing with American rock and roll, but just a different entity entirely. Jazz, uh, again, indisputably American. The arguments were you know, could jazz be played by white people or played by Europeans? And um, living in Japan, as I do much of the time, we have, you know, Japanese klezmer bands that can rival anything that came out of uh, Eastern Europe. And it almost seems like uh, the Japanese have figured out how to play salsa music in a more compact and efficient way than... Mm -hmm. uh, um, those down in the south of the border. So, Jonathan, I wonder if you have any thoughts about the uh, comparisons between the issues of authenticity in music and authenticity in food. Yeah, I remember seeing uh, at the Whiskey a Million years ago a, uh, a Japanese Led Zeppelin cover band that, <laughs> that was so perfect that they, that they even copied the mistakes. <laughs> you know, Jimmy Page missed a note, they missed a note. They weren't, they weren't going to give anything up. Um, it, 
it's an, it's an interesting question because, for example, uh, like Aerosmith was, I mean, the Rolling Stones were ripping off the blues guys and they were trying to be an orthodox blues band at first, except that they kind of weren't able to, but they sounded like the Rolling Stones, which wasn't so bad. And then Aerosmith tried to be, you know, tried to imitate the Rolling Stones, and they were really bad at it, but they were really good at being Aerosmith. And then Guns N' Roses tried to imitate Aerosmith, and... They were kind of not a very good Aerosmith imitation, but it was something else. I think that in, uh, in, in a lot of rock music, you have people who are trying to imitate their idols, and the most interesting part is in the formative part of their career where they fail at it and they sound like something else, and then at the point where they do manage to sound exactly like Tammy Wynette, you know, they're not Tammy Wynette. Um, and you're, and you're talking about in there are big questions in, in early music performance where instead of the, you know, sort of, you know, jazz, you, you can have somebody playing, you can have Glenn, listen to Glenn Gould playing the Goldberg Variations or you can listen to somebody play an absolutely proper Goldberg Variations on the harpsichord and Glenn Gould could not be less in, turn, in tune with, um, Baroque performance practice, but I'd rather listen to him 99 times out of 100. And I think sometimes it's that way in food, that when people that when people try to do cuisines and they don't quite get the tune, that there's a lot of times there's beauty in mistakes, there's beauty in the quirks. They manage to do things that there were, there were things at Campanile, and there are things at um, Pizzeria Mozza that would absolutely blow the minds of Italians. It, and I don't think that's necessarily a, a bad thing. Do you have anything to say on that? I'm a little prejudiced, but okay. But there are several. You know, we'll get. We have comment cards that are in the at the restaurant. Um, and uh, most things that people leave are, are positive ones because I think they're in a, people don't always want to say something, something negative. But, um, you know, sometimes on the, every night I read what people have to say and, and, you know, I'll read, you know, this is the best pizza in the world. I love it. I've never had anything better. And, you know, this is better than sex. And they go on and on and on and on and on. <laughs> and then all of a sudden there'll be something written in Italian and they'll say, this pizza is awful. But they'll say it in Italian <laughs> and I know it. So. It's not pizza, you know, so. And do you, do you, do you get gripes from uh, visiting Mexicans? No, my gripes are more from Americans that will sometimes say this isn't Mexican because the, the, what, they've, what they've been brought up with Mexican is not that. No, I have, I have some, uh, a wonderful collection of Mexican uh, customers all the time. And, and one of the things that makes me most happy when I, when I built Loteria, I said to, the, to all of my guys that worked with me, was, we're building a place that if we were to put it in Mexico City, that's where it would work. Because I know that when Americans go to Mexico, they love it. So if you just brought that here, could you do the same thing? So we have a nice, we have a nice group of people that live in Mexico City, and when they come to LA, they'll land, having woken up in Mexico City, mm -hmm. they'll land, come meet at our place, and then start their trip. Ah. So, it's, so to have certain... Um, we have, you know, we have certain things that I think we make better than in certain places in, in Mexico, mm -hmm. and 
certain ones that we don't make as well because we either can't get the right ingredients or we don't have the right pit, so we do it in an oven or, you know. <clears throat> and Roy, I know you've thought about the Kogi Crew as a band. I just yeah. know you have. <laughs> yeah. We're definitely, yeah. We, um, we definitely, we, we have a tour bus, you know. I don't, I don't, I don't know we're, we're a rock band, but we got this bus that we roll around in. But, I mean, um, I, I like what you said about mistakes because Kogi is, is all about mistakes. You know, like, mm. everything we do is a mistake, you know. Like, we're, al <laughs> we're always late, you know. I always run out of food and, like, pissing people off and it's just like everything we do is a mistake but then there's like this we find we find some solutions and some answers within those mistakes and if you look at a lot of Korean food here in LA a lot of the Korean food in LA was born from mistakes and if you like if you take the quintessential LA Korean food which is sundubu mm -hmm. um, you know the you guys probably know it as BCD or whatever on Wilshire but um, that's not Korean food you know that that sundubu is not has nothing to do with Korea at all and um, it was born from um, the immigrants coming here and then finding the ingredients that were around and then playing around with them and then and then making a soup that tasted like home you know so oh that's interesting because yeah. you can find sundabu in Korea then. you can but that yeah. was just like yeah. you said the road goes both ways you know and it went back yeah and, and, and there's that other famous uh, Korean dish budechikai. Um, which is a stew made of basically army-based leftovers. Mm -hmm. So it's a Korean soup that has top ramen noodles and spam and hot dogs in it. Yeah, it's delicious. But it's, <laughs> it is delicious and it tastes entirely Korean. Yeah, it does. But it's all canned meats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have a question here to your left, right here. Uh, Sharon Oxbrough from Los Angeles. My question was going to be essentially the converse of what the last one was, which is I have a lot of friends who do music or writing, and to a large extent for them, the writing and music is trying to do something new and different and unusual. And and that hasn't been done before, which is hard, try, hard to do after 2,000 years of people doing it. Um, and y the talk today has been about trying to do more or less what has been done before. And I wanted to know if the sh how the chefs felt about that and if they were pulled in opposite directions. If you feel you've already answered that and don't want to talk about it anymore, mm -hmm. Would you comment on the idea that there are like um, 8,000 bad Chinese restaurants in the world and most of them are in China? Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, and that's not just with Chinese food. Um, and, you know, to a certain extent, if you've got the quality and the time and the money, are you too good to be authentic? That's a deep question. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> kind of heavy. I'm going to switch my position for them. <laughs> I mean, again, I, I think that a lot of interesting things are done by mistakes. I mean, opera was invented basically by uh, Monteverdi and the Camerata uh, in Florence 
because they misread a text on what Greek drama was supposed to look like, was supposed to be like. And what they came up with was nothing like Greek drama, but for crying out loud, it was opera. I mean, not bad. Um, and there are 8,000 bad Chinese restaurants, and probably most of them are in China, but sometimes it seems as if they're all in West Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> We have a question all the way to your right here. This will be the last question of the night. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. Um, but we do invite you to join us at our, at our reception taking place right outside behind you. Just walk out into the courtyard. Uh, thank you very much. Hi, uh, Vivon Tran from Pasadena. Um, I was wondering, it seems like to find unique or authentic food, it's usually in one-off restaurants and you don't really see chains. And, I'm sure you've been approached about expanding your businesses, you know, each of you, and do you think you can still maintain your level of uniqueness or authenticity um, and bringing it mainstream without selling out? <laughs> oh, go, oh, go for I it. Know yeah, she yeah. <laughs> I know she can. She will. I, uh, well, I have been approached to uh, open um, more uh, mozzas, both the osteria and the pizzeria, and uh, we've been pretty firm until recently, which I'll tell you, about if we were to open a second one or a third one, that it would be the pizzeria, because I think that that one would be the easier one of the two to duplicate. The um, harder one would be the osteria, which is driven by pasta, and that is a lot more uh, harder to uh, duplicate. However, now here's an authenticity mm -hmm. answer to your question. I don't think I've told you this yet, mm -hmm. but I think we are going to open a pizzeria moza and an osteria moza in Singapore in a very new, huge uh, development that sounds pretty exciting. Oh, that's great. So, and Roy, I know you've talked about uh, the possibility of uh, 200 Kogi trucks roaming the country. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah every highway uh, we do, do road trips. But I, I think on a, on a <laughs> serious and deep level, for me and for the team, we're, we're reaching a crossroads um, of what we're, because all of this, this past four months has been a little overwhelming and um, a little embarrassing, to be honest, you know, because, um, but then, for, especially for me as a chef, I, I, you know, I, I talked about it earlier. It's like if it was just me as a chef, I would I, I would just open a nondescript, no sign place over off Santa Monica, you know, in the seedy part of Santa Monica, and you know, w with no PR and just cook. But I think Kogi has become something bigger, and and it's like tapped into something culturally that. Um, I just have to kind of let it go, you know, like a kid going to college, you know, and I just got to, I, I got to let it go. So um, I think expansion is in the works. We're going to fly to New York next month. Uh, New York has really been um, hounding us. And there's a little pride in that, too, because, uh, you know, I cooked in New York. I went to CIA. And, um, you know, in New York, it's like everybody looks at L.A. like, you know, like we're chopped liver. So, um, <laughs> You know, I think for us to bring a piece of L.A. to New York, um, I take uh, a little bit of pride in that. And, um, 
you know, I, I hope that Kogi can grow with a soul and that, um, that even if it does become this, this massive chain or, or whatever it does, maybe, you know, maybe I can't control the food, but maybe um, we can redefine a little bit of the, um, the way people eat in America or, or um, connect in creating street food culture in America. So I think the responsibility on that end, um, I'm willing to go in that direction to let it grow, to, to tap into uh, getting people to, to eat a little more. Um, a word that has surrounded a lot is like uh, serendipitous, you know, mm -hmm. just like when you walk around Asia or Mexico or wherever, it's different than here in America where you, you can just be walking to go to your bus and you smell the best sweet potatoes next, you know, from a lady sitting on an upside down milk crate, you know, and so um, I think if we could do that and contain some integrity and, um, and then create a new level of dining, um, then, uh, then that's not selling out, is it? I don't think it is. Not at all. <laughs> Thank you.